Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. All righty, Justin here. And uh, before I duck out for my own uh, sojourn to the Pacific Northwest in pursuit of steelhead, I could think of uh, nobody better than Zach Williams here, who is the editor of both Swing the Fly magazine and uh, Backcountry uh, Hunters and Anglers publication, Backcountry Journal. Zach, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Justin. Pleasure to be here. Really appreciate you taking the time, man. I know you're busy working on the spring issue of the journal. Can't wait to see it. You're doing a great job with that magazine, by the way. No, I appreciate it. I, uh, I not do a whole lot of the credit there. So uh, got a lot of uh, great people involved. So and uh, yourself included recently. So uh, great to have your story in there. I really appreciate you guys including me in in the magazine. That was a lot of fun. Um, Article looked great, I thought. So uh, kudos to you. Um, Before we dive a little deeper into who you are and everything that you do, um, I'm hoping you can you can share a memory with us from your adventures. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, one, one of my favorite, uh, favorite trips, we all have them that, uh, I ever been on it. It's been over a decade, but, uh, I think it was, uh, 2007, 2008. I quit my job and, uh, met up with a couple buddies down in, uh, Patagonia and we spent the whole winter down there. And, uh, I mean the whole, the whole trip, you know, stands out as, uh, probably the most memorable fishing trip of my life certainly you know three three months unplugged uh 
sleeping in the dirt and uh, literally and just roaming around doing things as uh, carefree as possible. It, uh, I think, you know, like when these trips are happening and these memories, uh, you always think that you're going to uh, get to repeat them. And as I've gotten a little older in life, I uh, figured out that uh, that's rarely the case or never the case. You know, even if you do go back, I did go back to Argentina, but it's just not the same trips. <laughs> you better, better enjoy the moment. But the fishing story that stands out for me from... Uh, that trip was, uh, we'd been, oh, we'd been down there for, I think about a month and, uh, we were traveling down the spine of the Andes and, you know, to be honest, we, we had some good fishing, but it, it wasn't easy. We had very little information that we were going off. And so we just show up at a river and try to figure out what we were doing and, uh, figure out where we could access things. And, but we, you know, we hadn't caught any of the fish that were uh, anything to really write home about you know we had some fun I mean we were enjoying ourselves but uh, we ended up on this big uh, brawling river known for uh, for big trout but otherwise not really knowing much about it and uh, I was uh, first day on the river and I was fishing my way down uh, I had a an eight weight single hander and uh you know, like a 300 grain teeny sink tip on and a big streamer. And I'd caught a few uh, 16, 18 inch rainbows, which was pretty good for uh, how we'd been doing up to that. So I was having a good time. And this river is just gin clear and really powerful and deep. And so you have these, uh, these holes that are, I don't know, 15 plus feet deep. At least that's what they look like from shore and uh, deep right up to the bank. And the current is just ripping along. It's not like a rapid. It's just pure power. And uh, I throw this big old white streamer out there and I'm stripping it in. But the current was so powerful, even with a really heavy sink tip, I, I could see the fly only a few inches under the water. And it just the sink tip couldn't punch through the current. I'm stripping this thing in and uh, the, uh, you know, when like uh, you see videos of like big tarpon, like flush a fly where they swirl on it and water goes flying 10 feet in the air. That's what happened. And uh, I mean, why, I kid you not, water uh, flew six, 10 feet in the air. And uh, before I blinked, I was 200 yards in my backing and uh the river's too deep and there was like overhanging willows and stuff. And I, I couldn't chase this fish. And, you know, we're, we're in a foreign country, obviously. We're there trout fishing, but there had to be fish in these rivers uh, beforehand. And uh, so I'm, I'm sitting there and this backing is just peeling off my line. And I'm like, what kind of fish is this? It's not a trout, right? <laughs> like, tr trout don't do this. Um, and so... Anyways, somehow I stopped the fish and uh, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I kind of, you know, the old trick that you don't really know is going to work. I put my whole rod down in the water and pointed it at the fish and just started like, just pointed straight at the fish and just started like slowly winding on the reel and was able to just kind of lead the fish back up river and... Uh, I don't know how long it took, you know, five minutes, 10 minutes, I have no idea, but uh, 
I get, finally I get, you know, backing back, fly line in and uh, this fish comes up and jumps and it was a brown trout, which I think is funny because, you know, I still hear some people say uh, brown trout don't fight like rainbows and stuff like that. And I kind of get a chuckle out of it, but uh, the fish jumped and it's just kind of forever painted in my memory because it was this big hook jawed male that, I mean, just was scarred up from spawning and fighting. And I don't know, he was 10, 12 pounds probably. And uh, he ended up, he jumped like five times and I got him up and, you know, at this time, I mean, this is, the fish of my lifetime and uh i get him all the way in and he's literally like five feet in front of me and i'm reaching out to try to tail him and the hook just falls out and uh he goes down and the water's gin clear and he goes down and he's like seven eight feet below me like right below my rod tip um but and he just is recovering and it's like kind of a back eddy of still water right there. And he just sits there. And so we just, I just look at him for like five, 10 minutes. And uh, I'll never forget that fish. The uh, the hook I was using at the time was this big Tiemco. Um, it was a stinger hook, you know, and it was, uh, it looked like a wine corkscrew when I reeled it up and looked at it and uh, I mean he he just shredded everything and uh, so you know I was like fishing was everything and I was completely devastated like literally could not sleep for like two weeks Um, were you alone? no I I was alone when when that fish was on yeah no witnesses no nothing um, always nice to have a buddy around him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously my, uh, my friends were skeptical of the story. <laughs> and, uh, anyways, uh, I mean, I couldn't sleep. We left that river, went and fished another one and stuff. But, uh, eventually I, uh, I convinced them to go back. And, uh, two weeks later we ended up back there and, uh, could be another long story, but I, I hooked this time I pulled out a big, uh, steelhead spay rod, went back to the same spot as like a thunderstorm was coming in and, uh, caught a fish that was equally as big or bigger, different fish, uh, a, a big female Brown, um, which was kind of redemption. But, you know, the funny thing to me is now after so many years later, it, it's the one that got away that stands out in the memory to me is is that one. You know, I, I can picture that fish better than if I had a picture, like an actual photograph of it, I think. it It's just kind of plastered in my mind. So, But you landed the second one? I landed the second one and got a photograph of it and everything, yeah. So my friends had to believe me on that one. Right, and how big was she? Oh, I don't know, 34 inches or so, probably. I mean, I didn't measure it, but... uh, Nice. You know, those kind of big trout like that that are uh, probably a whole lot more rare up here than down there, you know? Yeah, you don't see a lot of 34 inches in the Blackfoot. (laughs) No. Anyways, uh, that that was, in terms of a fish story, uh, that one stands out for me in my mind. 
And so you guys were just freelancing around down there for three months. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, one of my closest childhood fishing buddies and I had been talking about doing that trip for, uh, for quite a few years. Uh, and he had joined the Peace Corps and was in Bolivia and, uh, he sent me like a, you know, like, I don't know what it was, AOL messenger or something message. This, um, we hadn't talked about it in a couple of years and he's like, are we doing this? And I'm like sitting there, I've got a full-time job, one that I didn't really enjoy. Um, and I'm like, yes, <laughs> we are. <laughs> and so I, I went and quit my job. I'm like, I'm leaving. <laughs> and, uh, that's awesome. You've got kids now, so the days of uh, shirking responsibility and throwing in the towel are over. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. It uh, thing, things have a way of uh, changing. You know, we I came home from that trip and I was like, you know, I'm going back every winter or I'm moving down there or something. And uh, you know, that's what I mean. You can't you can't really ever go back. It, it doesn't happen again. Well, especially not for three months. And did you guys, did you guys just fish trout in Patagonia most of the time? Or did you go, did you have a chance to go chase Dorado or anything down there? Uh, you know, we, we had a kind of planned on it and time just got away from us. We wanted to go up. I had a lead on where to, you know, like our smaller river, you could wade for Dorado in Northern Argentina, but we never made it. So we, we went down the spine of the Andes and ended up all the way down at the tip fishing sea runs before uh, finishing it out. So Awesome. And how was the sea run action? One of my favorite places in the uh, entire world. I don't know. There's just there, there's something about those uh, barren, windswept rivers that uh, gets me, you know. I was uh, I was actually I was kind of reliving it a couple weeks ago and uh, found a little like video clip I'd taken of uh, you know I'm standing there in the river with uh, I mean literally as far as I know without having any way of measuring it hurricane force winds you know they the waves are coming over my back on a stillwater section of river and uh, you know kept fishing through it uh learned a lot about fly casting and stuff like that you know because i mean the the wind rarely stopped for weeks on end and so you learn how to cast and learn how to fish and so um but those places you know the gauchos and the fish and everything about it i just highly recommend wow yeah that definitely takes a steelheader's mentality to go down there and uh and wrestle through those conditions. That's not for everybody. No, pretty, pretty, pretty similar, of course, to some of the things we uh, would face steelheading. Yeah, we went down to Argentina. Uh, this has been probably at least a decade ago um, when I was producing an outdoor television show for for the Sportsman Channel with Conway Bowman, mm-hmm. and uh, we had aspirations of of fishing for Golden Dorado and all those gin cleared creeks and rivers and stuff that you see in all the photos and and we arrived in Buenos Aires and you know met up with the outfitter and it was pouring rain and they had like all-time record rainfall right when we got there and he was like everything's blown out guys we're just gonna have to sit tight for a few days so 
you know, like four days later, we've been in Buenos Aires, downtown Buenos Aires for days on end. And, you know, I'm sitting in the corner of this deli that I found on a little black and white TV watching the Masters in Spanish <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, drinking the local IPA, which was pretty good. But uh, I was just bored out of my mind. And, you know, finally, uh, he's like, all right, we're going to we're going to relocate. And we ended up going up um towards the um, border with um, with Uruguay, I believe, mm-hmm. um, and fished um, the Paraná River, which I believe is the second biggest river in South America next to the Amazon. Yeah. Um, and it was a huge river, so, and it was off color. It was really tannin, um, but it was the only game in town. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like going out on the Columbia <laughs> and yeah. kind of walking line casting around um, and we hooked some Dorados, some smaller ones and hooked one or two bigger ones but it wasn't quite the experience we were hoping for but uh, I would love to get back down there sometime like you said just you know the gauchos, the scene the food, everything was super cool even though we burned most of our time hanging out you know in uh, Buenos Aires and watching the Masters on a black and white TV screen <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not much of a city uh, person but uh, that one that one I- I've spent I've spent I think close to a month in Buenos Aires now, and uh, as far as cities go, it's uh, it's top of my list. So you know, I also uh, understand being trapped there. I, that first trip there, we were uh, not trapped, trapped, but we were. Uh, I was waiting on uh, my friends to get to Buenos Aires. My friend got delayed in Bolivia, and uh, so I was stuck there for a couple weeks and. Uh, by the time he got there, I was losing my mind. So I, uh, I feel for you. I was like, we got to go yeah, fishing uh, now. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do well in cities. So it was, uh, and you were kind of afraid to want, we were just kind of on our own down there. Yeah. You know, like a- yeah, it's, uh, it's an overwhelming city, you know. I mean, population, the si- size of New York City. Uh, my uh, my second trip down there, my, uh, my wife and I, uh, we rented a car in Buenos Aires, like in the middle of downtown. And, uh, which was just a terrible idea as it turns out. And, uh, uh, I was a poor at best driver of a manual. And so she did the driving and me the navigating, but we literally, you know, I mean, it, it took, I don't know, eight, 10 hours to get out of the sprawl of the city and we couldn't, we had like a really real, you know, like a handout map from the rental car agency and uh, no GPS or anything like that. And uh, I literally, I navigated us off, based off of looking at the sun out of the city. Like I was like, we need to go to the Andes south and west of here. And so we just drove south and west and we would just like we'd eventually hit a larger road and we'd just turn onto the larger road. No idea what road it was until finally we somehow ended up on uh, a numbered road that I could find on the map. And, uh, but it was an ordeal, <laughs> you know, the uh, uh, adventure though. You always remember those, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. Good memories now, not so much at the time, but that's the way a lot of it works. Right. Right. My wife and I on our honeymoon, we were going to go to Cancun and then 
rent a car and like drive down the Yucatan and maybe end up in Belize. And um, my mother-in-law is a flight attendant. So, you know, we just got um, uh, standby tickets and we were sitting at the airport and they told us, okay, the flights to Cancun are full. Here's your options. Uh, you guys can go to Cozumel. We're like, all right, cool. So we go to Cozumel <laughs> and uh, we had nothing booked or anything. And we just went from hotel to hotel and said, you know, look, we got 35 bucks. You got a room. And it, and it worked out. And, you know, the car that you had reminded me because we ended up renting this little beat up Volkswagen bug, this Beetle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> The panel was a different color. There was a hole through the through the floor, and it was a manual, but the transmission was just shot. I could barely drive it. I think it had two gears. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we ended up driving around to kind of the primitive side of the island. There's one hotel over there, one little motel with a bar and restaurant attached to it, and they shut the gates at like 8 p.m., so people from the other side can't drive out there to protect the... the um, turtle breeding grounds oh cool you had the whole side of the island to yourself and it just worked out awesome you know and we would have never found all any of that if we'd have gone to where we actually intended mm-hmm. yeah the road less traveled yeah yeah i mean i st- i'm still a fan of uh only having a loosely laid plan and seeing seeing where you can uh where you end up those plans usually don't work out the way that you intend anyway yeah. you're just setting yourself up for failure <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> And now a brief message from our sponsors. High-performance graphite shouldn't break the bank. Check out the Tamer brand of fly rods for composite developments available in 5, 6, and 8 weight. An unbelievable value at $199, Tamer 4-piece fly rods deliver smooth cast and precise presentation. Our Tamer kits include a Fly Lab pulse reel and weight forward fly line. A river-ready kit for under $300. Go to cd-fishing.us or visit a CD dealer in Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming. And remember to go fishing. Well, Zach, I, I imagine that the present state of steelhead kind of weighs heavily on your mind as an avid steelhead angler. Indeed. Yeah, man, the returns have been abysmal throughout the Columbia system and up and down the Pacific Northwest coast. Um, you know, as I'm sure you know, Washington has outlawed fishing from a vessel this year. I do know. Yeah, man. So kind of where do you stand in terms of, uh, of you know, whether or not we should be even pursuing these fish at, at, at this point? What are your thoughts? Well, t- tough decision. I think uh, something that uh, everybody probably has to decide for themselves until until somebody decides it for us. I can, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I spent over 20 years of my life pretty much solely dedicated to steelhead fly fishing and uh, I have not fished steelhead in two years um, if you look back for four now you know I was guiding on the Columbia Basin and stuff um, so the uh, the previous couple years to not fishing at all I was still guiding but I personally fished a total of eight hours for steelhead in those two years and so I don't know. Uh, per- personally, I uh, I I would love to go out to the Olympic Peninsula right now. I've been seeing people fishing out there and stuff like that. But I also I I have so much guilt about it at the moment that uh, it's hard for me to enjoy when I do do it. Um, and so 
I don't know. I'm uh, I'm pretty pretty on the fence with everything. But again, you know, I I also separate. I I've been very fortunate to fish a lot of steelhead. Um, I've had a lot of great experiences. So uh, you know, like me beating up on a couple more fish. What does it add right. for me personally? Whereas somebody who's just getting into it, learning about the sport, you know, learning about conservation and stuff, they probably gain a whole lot more from catching catching one steelhead. So that's what I mean when I think it's, you know, it's a personal decision. Uh, but in terms of the bait or the boat ban and stuff like that, you know, I uh, honestly, I... I think that uh, that we need we need to recognize that it's a privilege to fish for these fish. They don't, in my mind, they don't exist for the sole purpose of our recreation. Two, you know, a lot of the blowback on that has been from the guide industry, which to me, as, as a guide and as a former Olympic Peninsula guide, um, it's extremely disappointing to me um, to see guides putting their self-interest first. And uh, I feel, I feel like a guide's number one responsibility should be to the resource and to give back more than you take. And um, unfortunately a lot of what I've seen has not um, been aligned with how I feel about that. So I could right. probably go on and on, but, um, that, that's kind of how I feel. So, you know, some sacrifices had to be made. I'm, uh, I'm of the opinion that every fish counts right now. So we all, we all know there's, there's bigger issues, ocean stuff, all sorts of things, habitat, way bigger issues than right. recreational fishing impact. But, um, if, even catch and release mortality and the tiny percent that that it is, if it saves one female steelhead that could have spawned and produced three or four more five years from now, which then, you know, a couple of those females spawned and, you know, exponentially a few years from that, it's 12 more fish. So I think every one of those fish counts right now. And, uh, so I'm all for, uh, for making some sacrifice to, uh, to ensure that, uh, future generations can enjoy these places. And, uh, yeah. I, man, I, I appreciate your position there. I, um, I can relate, you know, I didn't, I didn't steal it fish last year at all. I don't think I did it the year before I might've, you know, swing a run on the lower Columbia or, I mean, on the lower Clearwater one afternoon or something. I don't remember, but I've hardly fished at all the last several years. And, you know, this year, our, one of our mutual friends, Mike DeShore, you know, went out and had a great yeah. trip. And, I, you know, then I, I, I fell for it. I'm like, all right, man, I got it. The, the itch was scratching. And sure. And I did go out this last fall and fished the Deschutes and, you know, caught a really nice fish, had a great time. And and um, I was going to go to the – I've never fished the Olympic Peninsula, by the way. Um, and I was going to go out there this year. And um, I subsequently canceled my trip. Cause it just felt kind of weird mm-hmm. um, with everything going on, you know, to show up and, and, uh, and give her hell. I don't know. 
but uh, I am going to go out to the to the Oregon coast and you know go hang out with my buddy and swing some flies and and give it a shot. But yeah, I can appreciate your your stance there. And I was very fortunate to grow up steelhead fishing and, and experience some really good years too. So I kind of feel I feel privileged and a little like like you do, where like do I really need to go catch too many more of these in in lieu of the situation? You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's. It's a personal, I, I, on the other side of it, I, I do, you know, when people say that, you know, that a closed river, you know, has no friends. I, I mean, we see the other side of it too. And so I, I don't want to see the rivers closed down. I don't want to see everybody stop fishing. Um, I think that would be really sad, but I do, I do hope that, you know, people, people can have, a conservation eye, I guess, when they are out there, you know, and everybody's going to have to make their own choices probably. And, uh, but you know, do, do I really need one more fish? Like if you go, if you caught a fish, like how much better a day can you get? Like, I mean, do do you need to catch another? And those are the personal questions, you know, or do you need another for the trip even, you know, like, Right. At, at what point, like, is it made? I And th- those answers are different for everybody. I, I know that um, at my point, you know, I'd like to go catch and I, you know, I, I may go back to the Olympic Peninsula next year or something, depending on how things are at. I, uh, after a couple of years off, I'm, I've certainly got the itch to go do that or to see a dry fly swing through the clear water. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a uh, evaluate as I go process. I don't have hard answers on it other than uh, we need to be really careful if we For want, sure. if we want, you know, I'd like to have my daughter uh, have the chance someday to uh, catch a steelhead. So, yeah, you and me both, man. Um, so tell me about Swing the Fly magazine. How did you get uh, involved in that? I don't I don't know much about uh, your background there. Did you start that publication? I did. Um, I had a couple partners for the uh, the first year or so, um, but yeah, I kind of it, it was an idea I just came up with. You know, uh, oh, the idea kind of popped into my head. I don't know, 2011, 2012, and uh, actually started uh, 2013 was when we put out the first. Uh, digital issue and really what what led to the idea of swing the fly was uh i was a big admirer of the old wild salmon and steelhead magazine that tom perrell put out and uh yeah for sure it it had since uh gone away and i thought there was just a big gap in the uh steelheading culture is so rich and storied the history of it um and uh, social media, you know, was kind of taken off. And uh, there was a lot of a lot of friends of mine and, you know, friends on social media. And I was seeing all these amazing photos and stories and, you know, blogs. And these this stuff was getting read by a couple hundred people or a few likes clicked on Facebook. And then it was gone forever. And I was like looking at some of this stuff. I'm like, man, that's that's better than <laughs> it's worthy of sticking around longer and recording kind of, uh, there was nothing to record that history. 
uh, spay casting was taking off and, you know, stuff like that. So I kind of started Swing the Fly as a tribute to that stuff. Um, and uh, there's just so many neat people that uh, really gave a lot to see it uh, come together. And, uh, you know, I kind of tried to do the back end for it, but it was, it's about all the, all the people and the fish and, uh, and not just the Northwest, but the Great Lakes and Atlantic salmon stuff. And then, you know, as Trout Spay has taken off, we've tapped into that as well and try to cover that. And there's, there's just, there's been so many cool people involved and, uh, it's, it's been a good time. It's, uh, been a lot of work, but, uh, here we are. And, uh, we did, uh, 20, we did nine issues digital only and people kept asking for it in print. And, uh, we found a way to do a Kickstarter and do print and did 20 issues in print. So another five years. And, uh, then, uh, just here recently, uh, print costs had just kind of gotten out of hand. Um, on the quarterly magazine print and shipping costs. So now I'm doing a kind of a combination of a ramped up website, but then we're going to do a, uh, an annual book to kind of keep something around for everybody who loves to uh, loves the feel of print and having something in their hands. We're going to do a hardcover book, which I think is going to be really cool. Um, Oh, very cool. So so that's what's what's going on now with Swing the Fly. When's that book going to come out, Zach? Uh, September. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yep. And then hopefully it'll be an annual thing if it uh, if response continues to be good and stuff. It'll be an annual thing. Um, so kind of uh, Swing the Fly right now is kind of a membership based platform so the website has member only content in addition to some free content and then the book is part of those memberships as well very so great idea yeah it's kind of you know it's become a community which is the part that i uh value the most out of it you know the spay casting stuff is a tiny tiny niche of fly fishing and uh in addition to the authors and contributors so so many of the uh the members and stuff have been so supportive and involved since the very beginning. And, uh, you know, I look, I look through the subscriber member list and recognize the vast majority of the names and have chatted with a lot of them, met them at events. And it's just, it's, it's cool. Very cool, man. Um, speaking of spay casting, so to shore our aforementioned mutual friend reached out to me a while. Yeah, yeah, we were chatting about something, and he's like, man, have you seen, you got to see this guy cast, you know Zach Williams. And I was like, no, I've heard his name, but he's like, well, you got to check it out. So, you know, I, I looked up some videos and uh, and watched some of your competitions, and um, pretty amazing, man. I would I would love an opportunity one of these days to go out on the river with you. Um, so how did, how did you get into spay casting initially, and how did that turn in uh, – to uh to the kind of competitive side of that of that game uh oh yeah um i mean how did i get into spay casting i don't know i was uh i'm from michigan so my start was in the great lakes and uh i was actually i was just like 16 years old and working in a sporting goods store and uh 
Michigan and we had a pro deal on St. Croix rods and they, uh, they came out with a, uh, their Imperial spay rods, which were like retail, like 250 bucks, you know, and, uh, pro deal, I paid 92 bucks for my first spay rod and, uh, I could get really long winded, but it, it was a process learning how to spay cast. I had an old, uh, I had recorded on VHS, you know, just hit record on uh, the TV show, Fly Fish America. The uh, the host was with Scott O'Donnell and Trey Combs on the Skagit. And uh, I'd recorded this one clip of Scott O'Donnell doing one spay cast. You know, there was like a six second clip of a complete cast in the whole 30 minute show. And I rewind that over and over again to try to figure out how to do a spay cast. And uh, so it was a slow process for a lot of years. And eventually more info came out there. Gosworth came out with the, you know, the Rio spay casting DVD and stuff like that, which helped tremendously. And it, it was a long, long process. Um, but I got into the, uh, the competitive thing, I don't know, I guess about a decade ago, um, through knowing some, uh, some friends who were into it, Gene Oswald, Bruce Kruk, and, uh, later Travis Johnson. Um, and then as a guide, I, uh, (laughs) that job, that full-time job, uh, that I didn't enjoy and quit to go to Argentina, I did really, uh, respect my boss and, uh, he was kind of a mentor to me and he, uh, he had known that I wasn't going to stick around at that job. And he just told me, whatever you decide to do in life, be the best at it. Or if you can't be the best, be second best. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, t- I took that and I haven't achieved first or second best at spay casting, but I, I took that as like kind of the cue to, uh, just really dedicate myself when I became a spay casting and steelhead guide. I wanted to be as good as I could possibly be at teaching spay casting at understanding it. And, uh, the competition casting, uh, sometimes gets a bad rap with fishermen, you know, but, uh, never did no other way would I have learned what I learned about spay casting that I've then, been able to apply to every sort of fishing and fly casting in general and stuff. So it's been a really, really fun and rewarding journey, if nothing else. Um, I, I, I love all the details of spay casting and there's a, a lifetime of stuff to practice in there and master. So. Oh yeah, no doubt. And, and like you mentioned, it applies to all fly fishing. I mean, you know, I use snap T-cast when I'm bone fishing, um, trout fishing, whatever, bass fishing. Um, so, yeah, that arsenal of cast, um, it, it, yeah, it applies to, to just about every fishing scenario. Yeah, yeah, the, te- the technique, yeah. Same, same with me, you know, a, a spay cast, you get a, you've in a boat on the flats and you you know, you're probably not going to make the spay cast as your final delivery to the fish. But if you understand spay casting, the uh, the amount of time you can change the direction of your cast inefficiently. So you got a fish moving across left to right or something and need to quickly change the direction that you're, you're going to cast in. And uh, little tools like spay cast help tremendously. So 
Um, yeah, exactly. Or fish in a tiny little brush choked creek with a little bamboo single hander or whatever. It, it always comes in handy. So, yeah, no doubt, man. Um, and, and now you are also the editor of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers publication, Backcountry Journal. Um, how long have you been in that position? Uh, just two years now. Um, just went by quickly. Um, but yeah, uh, swing, wow. swing the fly, uh, swing the fly led me to, uh, you know, the next step in life and, uh, right opportunity came along and I, uh, I stepped away from guiding and, uh, find myself, uh, making magazines, I guess. So now you're full-time juggling both those jobs, man. That's gotta be a, a heavy workload. It, it's a lot at times, you know, <laughs> It's a, it's a lot. I think uh, you know, swing swing the fly at times was a full time effort, and at times, um, you know, I've made some recent changes to try to take a little bit lighten the workload a little bit. But uh, yeah, the uh, backcountry journal and uh, trying to put out a quality product is uh, is certainly time consuming. So. I don't fish as much as I used to, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, well, and you have how many kids do you have now? One? Uh, yep, just a, uh, a little uh, six-month-old baby girl. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, keeping busy at the moment. and uh, Yeah, you're no danger to the steelhead. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'd be lucky to get, you know, one trip a year at the moment. And uh, I'm okay with that. Um, it, uh There'll be, there'll be other times for, uh, the fishing, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And, you know, like you said, good on you for wasting 20 years, 20 of your prime years yeah. on the water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I've, I've been lucky, you know, I've been lucky to, uh, spend a lot of days on the water. So. For sure. For sure. What's, uh, what's, what's one of your favorite steelhead flies to tie and fish? Oh, um, the, uh, there's a there's a sentimental favorite. There's a little uh, little fly uh, called the uh, green ant, and the green ant is uh, was originated on the Clearwater and Snake Rivers, and is featured in Trey Combs' book Steelhead Fly Fishing. And uh, that was one that I kind of latched onto and was a favorite uh, for me uh, on the Clearwater and. Uh, my wife's favorite fly pretty much every steelhead she hasn't done a lot of winter steelheading and i think every steelhead she's ever caught has been on the green ant she, she kind of refuses to use anything else so um is it actually green yeah yeah it's kind of a you know kind of caddis green um at least the one i tie is not like a bright chartreuse but kind of a uh, you know kelly green type uh pattern so it's got a little peacock curl, squirrel tail wing. Uh, the original had a, a black uh, collar on it, but I use I use a little grizzly collar for my my version and tie it real small and sparse, like a size six to eight and sparse. Um, that's that's a favorite for me uh, for summer steelhead, uh, winter steelhead. Uh, I typically you know. I've got quite a few different color variations of one or two unnamed flies that uh, are easy to tie. And uh, 
but you know, got a pink version, a black and blue version, and uh, those spend the most time on my line um, or on my client's line when I was guiding. So, right on. That's um, I'll look that fly up. That's interesting. You know, I always Kelly Green has been my favorite color under the shoots for a long time, and you know, most everybody down there fishes purple or orange or black. Yeah, and uh, I've caught way more. I also fish it more often, but I've just got a ton of confidence in uh, in a Kelly Green fly. Um, the reason I started using that in the first place was because my buddies that were spin fishermen would fish those Kelly Green blue foxes. Oh, nice! And, you know, and I, so I was like, well, how come all these flies are purple and orange and black? And um, these guys that uh, you know catch fish all day long are fishing green. So that's how I came to start fishing that color, but. Oh, cool. I'll look that. I don't remember that fly in the book. I'll look that up. Yeah, I don't think it's even pictured in there, if I remember correctly, but the pattern's in there. If you, you know, search the index in the back, you'll find it. Cool. And for winter fish, you kind of stick to a few different colors and then and then just kind of vary the weight. Is that your approach? Uh, yeah. Yep. You know, I uh, I spent the majority of my, my guiding time with either pink out on the Olympic Peninsula, bright pink. Um in off-colored water um, was always a go-to for me. And uh, then kind of a black and blue usually um, in when the water started to clear up. Um, I had other variations on that too. Um, but I, over my years of guiding, I simplified things more and more, you know, so the, uh, I just tie a whole, lot of a couple different patterns that I had a lot of confidence in, um, as opposed to, uh, getting all crazy with things. Um, although when I go some of my winter fishing now, I like to fish a little bit more traditional, big, uh, D style fly or something like that, but they're usually in the same colors. Well, those are my favorite colors to not catch winter steelhead on. <laughs> so what's your favorite color to catch them on? <laughs> Uh, that that remains to be seen, man. I have not caught very many uh, on a swung fly, and you know, especially since I moved to Montana, like trying to go hit a window uh, from here has proven to be uh, to be uh, a pretty fruitless endeavor. By the time I get there, uh, I've usually missed it, or or I'm or I'm in front of it. So yeah, but that's our yeah Ch- challenging rivers, you know to to learn that stuff. I think, I think for me, you know, what it's as a guide and stuff. And over the years, what increased, uh, success, um, on winter steelhead was an understanding of the conditions and how, you know, where to be when based on when it last rained, how much and what the water's doing with, what river to be on at what time, stuff like that, what section to be on that, that was always, probably the biggest key and then especially as the rivers got more crowded every single year um you know where where can i go to avoid the crowds and making those decisions is challenging and takes a lot of time that's a tough game man being a winter steelhead guide is is i liken it to being like a permit guide you know that understands the tides and 
and um, and there's just so much knowledge that goes into it. And most of your clients go out there and they don't catch any fish, and they think, well, hell, that guy didn't know what he was doing. But uh, but it's a huge knowledge base. It it is uh, a br- brutal way to make a living, you know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Occasionally people like tell me they want to get into it. I had a buddy call me a couple months ago saying he was thinking about guiding winter steelhead. I was like, are you looking to make money or have fun or like what's your goal here? Get divorced? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. What are you after? Um, Well, hey, man, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Um, How can people reach out to you in – and you know, join your join your website um, and get in touch with you. What are the best ways? Yeah, swing swing the fly is uh, swingthefly.com and then uh, Backcountry Journal is uh, the magazine put out by the nonprofit Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So you can uh, join the organization, support conservation causes, and uh, you get the you get Backcountry Journal as a product of that as a perk of membership so um appreciate the support of the organization for sure um yeah but both of those have ways to contact me of course on facebook and instagram and stuff like that too both of them great yeah and uh backcountry journal is uh is way better than it was before you know you picked up a sinking ship there from from your predecessor. Um, just kidding. Shout out to Sam. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> good people, uh, put a, put a lot of effort into making that project, uh, come together and it came a long ways over the years. So, uh, I'm honored to get to contribute the, or continue the, uh, the history of it and, uh, hopefully, uh, keep it moving forward. But yeah, my predecessor, Sam, did an amazing job and uh so well right on man well thanks again uh i'm gonna go wander out to the river and go work on my spay casting before i gotta go cast in front of my buddy john hazlett so oh nice nice well uh good luck and uh have a great time uh i'm envious so that'll be fun go to the februaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests their fishing stories and favorite fly patterns we're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns and if you have one to spin shoot us an email at info at the februaryroom.com the february room is always free but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond we appreciate any additional listener support For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.